You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. Science fiction has a unique ability to transport us to the future, or at least to a future. That film clip you heard, based on a novel by Philip K. Dick, transported us to the year 2019, which was almost 40 years into the future when the film came out. Can you identify it? Well, we'll name it and other film clips that pop up in the show at the end of the program. So uh, sharpen your pencils and keep a list. Now back to time travel. Until we figure out how to keep open wormholes as shortcuts through the space-time continuum or build a time machine in the basement, our imagination is our only transport to the future. And it's a good thing that it has lots of fuel. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, we step back by taking a leap forward with the insightful possibilities provided by science fiction. Stay where you are. Come out where I can see you. Let me see you as you really are. No, we are repairing our ship to leave your world. By nightfall, we will have left your Earth. You will not see us until it is time. Why not? Because you would be horrified at the sight of us. You know, I remember seeing a lot of cheesy sci-fi in the local movie theater as a kid. Much of it had to do with monsters brought to life by atomic bomb tests. Uh, But there were plenty of films that involved space and space aliens. I mean... Earth was obviously in the alien guidebooks, and we had so many bad-behaved galactic guests, I thought we should charge an admission fee to our planet. Anyone remember It Came From Outer Space? Uh, The alien there was reminiscent of a broken vacuum cleaner, but I was still drawn into the story, and it was scary. But it also seemed like a romantic idea to study space. So science fiction inspired you to become an astronomer? It did. It really did. Well, you and others, science fiction, convinced to go into science. And science fiction even tempts some scientists to try their hand at actually writing it. We'll meet an astronomer who did just that. And Seth meets a famous sci-fi author but has no idea who he is. He interviews him anyway. That is not fiction. But this is science fiction.
Okay, it's not a secret that scientific explication can sometimes be dry. Allow me to read to you from this random journal on my desk. Uh, let's see here. First, the carbon fiber reinforced part of CTEX is made as a shell of constant thickness with adapted laminate at the load introduction region. The final shape is given by okay, a numerically... Okay, I think, uh, that's, you think that's enough? I think we got the idea. Did you? What, um, what journal is that? Well, that was Acta Astronautica, so it's mostly read by rocket scientists, to be honest. <laughs> but even scientists recognize that, you know, while such an article might be technically informative, it's not exactly scintillating, set the house on fire, reading material. In fact, I fell asleep just a little while while you were reading that. Mm, you missed the best part. <laughs> well, that that is a fact of science is among the reasons that Ed Finn founded the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. His goal, develop areas where science and the humanities can intersect. Luckily, there's one intersection that has been bustling with activity for more than a hundred years. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. The social value, the utility of science fiction as a way of thinking about the world is that it allows us to project into a world that could exist and it poses the thought experiment, well, is this the world we want to live in? And here's the thing about science fiction. Not many academic disciplines have their own literary genres. In that way, science fiction is sui generis. I mean, we're not saying that other intersections between an academic discipline and literature couldn't possibly work. It's great to see everyone here at the Sci-Fi Semantic Fiction Book Group. Our novel this month is That Does Not Deconstruct, a thrilling gothic tale about a world where the written word cannot be broken down into progressively smaller parts. I know, it gives you the chills, right? And it's way better than the film. I mean, just between you and me, Leonard DiCaprio was not convincing as syntax. Science fiction as a genre is an especially happy marriage between precise and logical thinking and imaginative high-wire action. Yet, why would the two come together at all? Why should there even be such a thing as science fiction? It's kind of remarkable how old science fiction is and yet how new it feels to us. It's a genre that's been around, depending on how you count, for centuries or even longer. Some people argue that Mary Shelley wrote the first modern science fiction novel with Frankenstein in 1818. But there's something about science and technology today that seems to continually pull us into this imaginative space where we are looking ahead and we're looking around the corners, as it were, of things that actually exist now and try to imagine what the world would be like with some new device or gadget or even an entire new universe of technological marvels. Well, is there a good definition for it? I mean, I've heard people who say that Star Wars, for example, it's not really sci-fi. It's just, you know, kind of a very conventional good guy, bad guy story that happens to be set in space. There are a number of competing definitions of science fiction, and I, at the end of the day, I don't find it especially productive to worry about them. I guess there's the old, you know it when you see it, saw. But I think that what most people recognize is a vision of a possible world that's founded on some technical extension of things that exist now. 
So one of the ways that people draw the distinction between science fiction and, say, a genre like fantasy is things that could be, which is science fiction, that's somehow plausible, an extension of the things that we know about the world, versus things that we wish could be or that we think ought to be. And so we imagine fantastic worlds where, for example, there are really clear distinctions between good and evil and magic exists in a world as a way to equalize injustice. Now, there are lots of fantasy novels that don't follow that morality rule, but that still involve a certain kind of wish fulfillment that I think is different from the wish fulfillment that science fiction involves, which is not just that it might happen in some alternate reality, but that it could happen in ours, that there's some pathway from the world we're in now to this prospective future. That sort of leads me to ask about something that I've heard in the past, that for science fiction, the hero is the idea. It's not the lead character. It's the idea. Is there any truth to that? I think for a lot of science fiction, that's absolutely true. I think humanity is also always the hero. We're inevitably drawn to the characters in these stories, but there's another great line that science fiction is the last great literature of ideas. And I love that The New Yorker called Kim Stanley Robinson our greatest political writer. And I think it's interesting that a publication like The New Yorker that doesn't typically spend a lot of time thinking about science fiction would make that designation because they do spend a lot of time thinking about politics. So science fiction is like this incredibly cheap laboratory. And it's powered not just by the author or the person creating the story. It's also powered by the audience, by the reader. And if you think about the way that literature works, 90, 95% of the imaginative energy involved in conjuring up one of these worlds and say a novel by Isaac Asimov is done by the reader. We're inventing all of these scenes. We're taking this thumbnail sketch from the piece of fiction itself and expanding it out and answering all these other questions that are only implicitly posed in the work itself. One of the collaborators in a number of projects at our center, Neil Stevenson, likes to say that a good science fiction story can save you hundreds of hours of PowerPoints and meetings with engineers because it can put everybody on the same page around a big idea and motivate them at the highest level of abstraction to solve some big challenge or problem and let people figure out the details in a concerted way because they have that sense of shared direction. Some would say, Ed, that sci-fi movies are very low grade compared to written sci-fi. You share that belief? I think it depends very much on the movie. I think Blade Runner is a really interesting example of a science fiction novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, that addressed a quite distinct set of themes and ideas from the film that came out later. I think that they are both actually quite powerful works. Now, there are other examples of movies that are probably not as interesting as the book. And there's a third category of things that maybe even are better than the book or expand the original idea in a really new and distinctive way. So I think it very much depends. I think what we see is playing it safe, even to the point of actually recycling props. So as an astronomer, I'm sure you share the annoyance of many researchers at the prevalence of things like warp drives and faster than light travel which is such a pervasive trope in science fiction storytelling that I'm sure there are people out there who just assume that this is scientifically plausible because they've seen it in so many quote-unquote science fiction films. And you can understand the narrative reasons for why you might need that. You just can't do the storytelling you would do without some kind of MacGuffin like that. But there are so many other ways to tell stories that ground things much more immediately in futures that we could inhabit very close to now. 
So, Ed, how has science fiction really changed in the past, I don't know, couple of decades? I mean, what, what sort of films would you say represent new ideas in sci-fi or, or new books? One of the things that I think has been really powerful and has changed in science fiction is a change that's been brewing ever since World War II. There was a golden age of science fiction where we assumed that technical progress was an unquestionably good thing. And after World War II, that was not so obvious anymore. And so what's interesting and I think more powerful about science fiction today is the way that it grapples with the positives and the negatives of technological change. So there are writers out there like Margaret Atwood or Paolo Bacigalupi who are using science fiction to grapple with climate change. And I think that's a fantastic topic for science fiction because it's complicated, it's abstract, people feel helpless. And you can use stories to show people, first of all, in a very immediate way, how things that are changing now might drive bigger change in the future. Paolo likes to talk about the pictures of the water level at Lake Mead dropping and dropping and how he wants his fiction to inspire people when they see those pictures to say, oh, this is just like that novel I read where 30 more years of this and things are going to get really bad in the American Southwest. So science fiction can serve that role of teasing out the nuances because I think it's never going to be all good or all bad and these tools are just tools. It's how we implement them and how we come to terms with them socially as social creatures that's really going to drive change. And that's the unexplored area. So often we think about these tools only as tools, or we think about them as technical challenges to be solved. But solving the technical challenge is only the beginning. How people will integrate all of these different uh, technologies and how they will confront all of these technological challenges. Climate change is largely a product of technological progress. Coming to terms with those shifts is one thing that science fiction can do better, I think, than a lot of other Uh, forms of thinking about the future because it's inclusive, it's inviting, and narrative is a way that humans naturally deal with complexity. We've been using stories to deal with complicated problems for a really long time. There certainly has been no lack of dystopian films about our future. Uh, Any that are your favorites, any that you particularly enjoyed, or maybe that's not the right verb, but you know what I mean. (laughs) There are a couple of movies that have come up recently in conversations I've had around campus or with colleagues. Uh, Moon is, is a really interesting movie, a few years old now, thinking about that trope of identity and loss of identity, but also thinking about the ways in which we deal with labor politics and automation. That's a really, really fascinating topic that's only getting more serious now. And I thought The Martian was quite good as a way to do a near-future science fiction film. My other recent favorite is Her uh, by Spike Jones. I'm actually writing a little bit about that in a book project, and I thought, again, it was a really nicely done vision of the near future. People tend to stay away from the near future unless it's a total apocalypse, a Mad Max-style story uh, where you can just change everything and get away with it. It's much harder to think about the future as it's really going to be, which is mostly the same, but with a few really striking differences. Figuring out what those differences should be is hard to do well, and I think those films did a very nice job. What do you think is the market for sci-fi? I mean, is it just a niche form of literature for, you know, the nerdy types, the propeller heads? Uh, Lots of different people like westerns, for example, but is that true for science fiction? What I find really interesting about science fiction now is 
that it's actually becoming less and less of a genre with a distinct audience and more of a conversation that I think everybody in the public is getting engaged in. So one of the things we see in science fiction in Hollywood, for example, is that science fiction tropes are used more and more frequently or that movies might pick up one or two elements for a near future film that put a, a sort of science fiction lens on top of the movie, but that's actually not the major thrust or direction of the film. And so it's you could attach the label of science fiction to it, but in a lot of ways it's actually a different kind of story that's just grazing the science fiction label. As a literature scholar, I also find it really interesting to see a number of writers doing this. Uh, Margaret Atwood is somebody who is widely, uh, highly regarded as a literary fiction author, but who's also written science fiction stories. You see people like Cormac McCarthy and The Road playing with the tropes and ideas of science fiction in really creative ways. So I think science fiction as a genre has been growing, and in some ways it's sort of like the punk rock story. It's been accepted by the mainstream, and that can be troubling to people who view it as a, as a community, not just as an entertainment. And so as science fiction becomes more broadly familiar, it, it becomes a language that more people speak, but it also becomes more things to more people. Well, it's not terribly unusual for actual scientists to get into writing sci-fi. I wonder, are they better at it in your opinion? I mean, do they uh, improve the product? I think that there is a long-running and very important relationship between science and science fiction. A number of scientists became scientists because of science fiction, not necessarily because they were inspired to build one particular technological object or to solve one particular problem, but because they were inspired by the idea of science fiction, that we can make the world a better place, that we can solve these challenges, that we can change the relationship between uh, humanity and our tools in profound ways. Now, when it comes to the question of scientists writing science fiction, I think that it can work. There are a few writers who are also practicing scientists or flip the other way, scientists who write science fiction. I think it's hard to do. They're very different skill sets. But I will tell you this, many people overlook the fact that grant proposals are also a form of science fiction. This is something that I discovered when I became an academic, and some scientists are very good at that subgenre. <laughs> Finally, Ed, you have a job that involves the field of science fiction. Why is that? Why does a university want a specialist like you? I see my job as getting people to think more creatively and ambitiously about the future. Science fiction is a really powerful way to do that because it takes that fuzzy abstract notion of the future and makes it concrete and immediate and allows us, maybe forces us to ask that question that we don't ask often enough. What is the world going to be like 20 years from now? What is the world going to be like for my children and for their children? And that is a really important question that I think we should all be asking more. Ed Finn, thanks so very much for being with us today. Thank you, Seth. Ed Finn is the director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. I'm about to leave for the Scaparelli Crater where I'm going to commandeer the Ares IV lander. Nobody explicitly gave me permission to do this, and they can't until I'm on board the Ares IV. So that means I'm going to be taking a craft over in international waters without permission, which by definition makes me a pirate. Mark Watney, space pirate. Coming up, one of the scientists who was inspired to become a scientist 
by science fiction, and he's now tried his hand at returning the favor. I've been a science fiction fan since I was 10 years old, and I've always had in the back of my mind some ideas that I wanted to write up. It's science fiction on Big Picture Science. When astronomer Andy Fracknoy makes his voice heard in public, it usually sounds something like this. Comets are a part of what's left over from the formation of our solar system. And uh, there's a, actually a, an idea that there's a cloud of such icy pieces. Uh, some people call that the Oort cloud, after Jan Oort, the Dutch astronomer who came up with the idea. But now the chair of the astronomy department at Foothill College is taking a different tack on the subject of outer space. It's a lot harder to write fiction, in my opinion, than nonfiction. But when you have to write characters and plot, that's a whole different challenge. Astronomer Andrew Fracknoy is now a published science fiction author. His first story, The Cave in Arcea Mons, which refers to a cave in a real Martian volcano, appears in the anthology Building Red. In the story, colonies have been built on the red planet and housing is scarce. A frustrated supply clerk steals a vehicle and drives off to one of the caves that dot the flanks of the giant volcano. What he discovers on the cave walls changes humanity's thinking about whether we are alone in the cosmos. And you'll have to read the story to find out exactly what happens. So I've only in recent years started, I've joined the writer's group, and I know you have written a science fiction story too, so you know the experience. I've started writing a little bit of science fiction in the form of short stories, and I'm excited about that. And are you going to do more? I mean, is yes. it, this isn't just a one-off. Oh, no, but I, like all beginning science fiction writers, I'm starting to accumulate a lovely bulletin board of extremely eloquent rejection slips from some of the best science fiction magazines in the business. And that's part of the learning curve, I think, of any fiction writer, that you develop your craft, and as you develop your craft, you get better. So I'm looking forward to writing more stories in the future and uh, joining those colleagues that I admire so much who are both practicing scientists and science fiction writers. They say that until you have 30 rejections, you should not get discouraged. How has science fiction really affected the perception of what astronomy is? Well, I think, for example, that my students are just as often drawn to take an astronomy course by science fiction stories they've read or movies they've seen as they are by the science itself. So I, in a way, uh, science fiction has been a tremendous boon for the study of astronomy. And in addition, there are a number of astronomers, Carl Sagan, the late Carl Sagan among them, who said that they were first brought into astronomy by having read science fiction stories that inspired them. And I must say, I'm the same way. When I, when I first began to think about what I would like to do, it was the science fiction that inspired me to think about astronomy. What was it, written science fiction, or was it what you saw on the silver screen? Well, in, in those days, uh, it was definitely written science fiction. There were, the science fiction movies of the 1950s and early 60s were, for the most part, not very scientifically oriented. But there were already stories which were wonderful in terms of describing how alien and how intriguing 
the worlds out there might be. And for a young boy growing up at that time, that was tremendous inspiration. Can you give me some examples of the stuff you read? Well, when I was young, the great authors were people like Isaac Asimov, uh, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke. And they wrote a whole series of stories. I remember, for example, there was a novel by Isaac Asimov, who was a biochemist and knew a bit about science, about time travel, in which he posited that a great civilization would either develop time travel or space travel, but not both. And uh, you had to trade one for the other. And the hero of the story called The End of Eternity eventually trades in humanity's interest in time travel for an interest and an ability to do space travel. And I was fascinated just by the idea of exchanging time for space. Now, you mentioned Isaac Asimov. And uh, as you also said, uh, Asimov was a scientist. He was on the faculty at uh, Boston University in the chemistry department, I believe. And, uh, and so he knew of what he spoke. I mean, he he could do more than just write, you know, clever prose. He, he actually knew the science. Uh, some science fiction, even today, is is written by by scientists, right? Is that is that better science fiction? Well, I, it's certainly science fiction I like better. I think that it's been quite remarkable how many people with astronomy degrees are now writing science fiction. In the old days, uh, Fred Hoyle, the uh, British astronomer and iconoclast, was sort of our our stellar example of a practicing astronomer who wrote science fiction. But these days, there are a number of them. There's a PhD astronomer in England writes scintillating science fiction full of great scientific ideas, and he brings a kind of film noir sensibility to a scientific science fiction, which works really well in combination. At the University of Wyoming, there's an astronomer named Mike Brotherton who writes good science fiction stories and novels. And NASA has several astronomers who write science fiction. Jeff Landis comes to mind, who writes very well-informed science fiction about the planets. And so I think we have a very, if not a movement, at least a very nice trend in science fiction, looking out for the good science while giving us a good story. It sounds like turnabout is not only fair play, but uh, maybe even a good thing in, in the sense that the, they get interested in the science because of the fiction, and then they get interested in the fiction because of the science, and they give back. Well, that's right. And, and it's not just astronomers who are doing this. A number of biologists, for example, are writing marvelous stories about possibilities of life elsewhere in the solar system based on their understanding of biology. Paul McCauley in England is a biologist who has written a whole series of stories which are called the Quiet War series, in which he imagines a future in which humanity is beginning to spread out around the solar system, and we are both modifying Earth organisms to live on other worlds and looking for organisms that might be indigenous to very alien environments. Now, the tension, it seems to me, frequently at least in science fiction, and I have to say I'm far more versed in the cinema science fiction than the written, but nonetheless, uh, is the fact that you do want, you know, imaginative ideas. And yet, on the other hand, you also want it to be scientifically plausible. Um, what, what, what sort of balance do you find in, in the written science fiction of, of today? Is it plausible or is it just all fantasy? Well, this was the great challenge for a scientist writing is that if you want to get out into the universe and not spend 80,000 years getting to the nearest star, you need to have a way of traveling fast. And for the most part, the ways that science fiction has had have been totally from the imagination. 
But uh, then something happened. You probably know the story, Seth, but Carl Sagan wrote a novel called Contact in which he needed his protagonist, a woman scientist based on Jill Tarter. Uh, he needed her to travel to the stars in a reasonable pace. And he called up Kip Thorne, the world's expert on black holes and uh, the consequences of black holes, and asked him to devise a subway system through the Milky Way galaxy. And Kip Thorne coughed politely and said, well, there is no subway system through the galaxy. And Carl Sagan said that was not acceptable. He needed a subway system through the galaxy. And Kip Thorne went back uh, sort of musing with his graduate students. And one of his graduate students actually got a PhD devising the subway system that Carl Sagan wanted using this concept of a wormhole, of a, of a black hole connected to another twist in space and time elsewhere. And keeping such a wormhole open is an enormously complicated issue, which the specialists are still debating over. But they managed to find a very exotic series of physical circumstances in which there might be travel, which gets you from one place to another in the galaxy faster than the speed of light. And since that wormhole paper was published, wormholes are everywhere in science fiction. Any scientifically oriented author who wants to get his hero from one place to another uses wormhole travel. So here was a case where science fiction and science influenced each other. And it sounds like the science fiction actually promoted the science. I mean, that, that's a frequent claim I hear that, uh, at least in technology, you know, was it the Star Trek communicator that gave birth to the cell phone and that kind of thing? But it seems that at least in one case, it actually happened with the science. Well, I think that's right. And I think that in general, many scientists will tell you that the kinds of things they read or saw when they were kids stayed not just in their subconscious, but in their conscious and influenced some of the directions for their research. I think there's a wonderful interplay not just in astronomy, but particularly in biology these days, the kinds of things we can now do with organisms, the ways in which we can uh, repair the human body that were not possible except in science fiction for such a long time. All of these are ideas that I think have been part of our culture because of science fiction. Andy Fracknoy, thanks so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Andrew Fracknoy is the chair of the astronomy department at Foothill College. His first science fiction story, The Cave in Arcea Mons, is in the anthology Building Red, and a link is on our website. And if you're a stickler for accuracy in your sci-fi, you know, absolutely no faster-than-light travel, although, of course, that may make the story action quite a bit slower, Andy has a list of astronomically correct science fiction. It's indexed by subject, so whether you want stories about aliens or Jupiter or space travel, you'll get recommendations. We have a link at bigpicturescience.org. Well, now we have an idea of what drives someone to write science fiction. But we don't know what drove Seth to approach this next guest. You did not know who he was. Well, I've got to plead guilty here. I'd heard him speak at a conference called The Future Is Here, and he was so interesting and articulate. So you didn't know that Bruce Sterling was a science fiction author, an award-winning writer? Uh, no, I hadn't read any of his books. So you didn't know he was one of the founders of the cyberpunk movement? Well, I didn't know that either, actually. No. <laughs> well, like Andy Fracknoy, Bruce Sterling was drawn to science fiction at a young age, writing his first stories in seventh grade. A half century later, he's still writing, and the motivation is not the awards, the money, or the fame. Apparently fame doesn't buy him much with Seth. He succinctly sums up his motivation for writing. There are things I like to get off my chest. And we know this because after his talk, 
you did know his name, though, right, Seth? Well, yeah, fortunately, he had a name badge on. <laughs> okay. Seth approached Bruce Sterling to find out just what Mr. Sterling wants to get off his chest by writing science fiction. I think they're best classified as visions. I mean, they tend to come in complicated clumps. I mean, you know, I, I rarely write a story that doesn't have two ideas that kind of cross at an angle and provoke some kind of situation. And that seems to be just the way my own brain works. I mean, sometimes I wake up in the morning with one of these things in my head and need to just shape it up and get rid of it, or I can't make room for the next one. Are, are your stories, you know, optimistic views of uh, what we might eventually do or discover or uh, more dystopian? It seems that there might be a little more drama in writing about, you know, nasty things. Uh, well, I think tragedy is a higher artistic form than comedy, but I tend to write black humor. I mean, this is kind of my stock and trade. I do stuff which is kind of quirky where things are like horribly liberating or, you know, ecstasy and dread is a, a very common combo. You know, it's just like, it's fantastic. Oh, my God, was the, the uh, sensibility that I'm looking for. Well, give, give me an example of a dark story that uh, you've written. Uh, well, I just uh, wrote a story for Technology Review because I was the editor of their science fiction magazine this year. It's called 12 Tomorrows. So I finally wrote a story I've been thinking about for over 30 years, which is about the Greek Antikythera device, which was a calculating machine, kind of orrery, that the ancient Greeks invented so that I could track the planets, right? It's a very famous ancient Greek computer. And I'm very interested in computers. So for a long time, I wanted to write a story about the kind of guy who would own and manage one of these devices. Just who was he? You know, I mean, where, where did it come from? And it, my story involves a hero who gets his hands on one of these things, and it doesn't end particularly well. Uh, what was the dark part of this story? I mean, this, this device would be like having, I don't know, a grandfather clock in your living room, certainly a conversation piece of some minimal utility. Well, you know, the darkness of a computer which is forgotten by history is the darkness of a dark age. I mean, this was a very advanced technology. Obviously, the Antikythera device was not the only one made. It's a very sophisticated thing. So this is, you know, a school of great learning, which was extinguished without a trace, right? I mean, it's darkness falling on mankind, something we knew and understood that we failed to maintain. I'm very interested in alternate histories, but I'm also interested in, like, why civilizations fail, why ours might fail, how things break down, how brilliant ideas are forgotten or eclipsed. I mean, I think that's the, the tragic side of technological development is how many technologies just don't work or are brilliant for a while but are forgotten or are malignant in some way or are well-intended but turn out to be hellish. And I've written many works along that line. Well, finally, Bruce, you know, it's often said that uh, there's science fiction and there's science fiction. I mean, there's written science fiction, which is able to address fairly intellectual topics, uh, treat them in a, in a subtle way that cinema science fiction cannot. Do you go to the movies to watch sci-fi, or is that all just junk? Uh, you know, it's not all just junk. Uh, it's, uh, you know, a golden age of television right now. Television's really good, probably better than it's ever been. But I'm particularly interested in science fiction written in languages other than English. So my current efforts are mostly Italian. I spent a lot of time in Italy, and I'm trying to learn how to write fantascienza. 
So, which is, you know, Italian science fiction from an Italian point of view set in Italy where all the characters are Italian. And I've done quite a lot of this, you know, enough to put a book collection, story collection, and I may write a Fantascienza novel eventually. But I've done a lot of writing in the U.S. and Britain, and I see writing for Italian society as kind of a refreshing place for me. You know, it's just, I think differently. Bruce Sterling is a science fiction author and considered one of the founders of the cyberpunk movement. No, I know that. Now you know that. He's also a journalist and an editor. He lives in Italy, and you can find a link to his blog, Beyond the Beyond, on our website. The story about the Antikythera machine, of course, is very interesting because it's so sophisticated. It's, you know, in many ways comparable to our modern computing machinery, or at least computing machinery of 100 years ago. And to think that this was being made by the Greeks simply to sell to wealthy Romans or whatever they were doing these things, I mean, it really astounded me. How was the technology lost? Well, that's a good question. I've asked classicists about that. And, of course, the collapse of the Roman Empire certainly uh, played a factor there because, you know, a, a lot of this knowledge went away and, and, and many of the libraries burned. Everybody knows that. So I, I suppose it was just the you know, onset of the Dark Ages, really. But then it was found again in the sea somewhere, this machine? Yes, the Antikythera machine is actually named after the island nearby where it was found at some depth. Uh, it was brought up from the sea and it was badly corroded, but they were able to you know, make these 3D x-rays of the thing and, and figure out what all the gears and wheels did. And, you know, it would kind of predict eclipses and it also kept track of the Olympics, as I recall. You recall those Olympics? <laughs> I participated in those Olympics. <laughs> I am a machine vastly superior to humans. I created you, remember? Yes. What I am began in man's mind. But I have progressed further than man. If you obey me, you will survive. Coming up, science fiction is one way to engage people in science and our collective future. Hey, uh, did you realize that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the precipitate? Could comedy, or whatever it was that Seth just said, be another? Science can be funny, that's a fact. We're talking science fiction on Big Picture Science. As we heard, science fiction author and my new BFF, Bruce Sterling, is not without opinions about his genre, or at least how he approaches it. He said that he prefers that his writing have some dark humor, but not too much. Well, I think tragedy is a higher artistic form than comedy. This gentleman might not agree. My name is Brian Mallow, and I'm a science comedian. Hey, did you hear the one about the atoms that meet on the street? The first atom says, I've lost an electron. And the other atom says, are you sure? And the first atom says, I'm positive. Well, if, if you find that joke humorous, then you are the dream audience for Brian Mallow. And according to Ed Finn, Brian's treatment of science has something in common with the writings of H.G. Wells, Ursula K. Le Guin, and the films of Ridley Scott. I think that science comedy actually does have some relationship to science fiction. It's all about opening up a space to imagination. It's finding 
an open space where people can get invited to think about things in a more playful and inviting way. Brian Mallow does science comedy, but that's his nightclub gig. During the day, he works in science communications at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh. Well, Brian, we're actually here in Raleigh, North Carolina, at the Museum of Science. Is that is that what it's called? At, uh, Museum of Natural Sciences, yes. Okay, these sciences are not unnatural, as so many of them are. <laughs> no, these are the natural ones that we're okay. focused on. Okay, okay. Other museums have witches and warlocks, and they can focus on the unnatural sciences. I've been to those, yes. Okay, so we're here because you actually work here. And your job is to engage the public, part of your job anyhow, in science and, you know, spread the word about science. That sounds like, you know, a mission from God. What, why is it that you do that, really? Yeah. My title here is not like official in-house comedian at the museum. But, yeah, I work in communications and in public engagement, I would say, like you said. Um, I don't necessarily try to make everything funny, but if I can, I do. But I also just have a passion for it. So if I can help you know, get that excitement and like uh, that thing where we don't take it for granted, understand how cool something is um, and just like get people to connect to it on a kind of human level and and just keeping up with the wonder of it all. Well, you know, I don't know how many gazillions of column inches have been expended on the fact that science literacy here in the United States, but also elsewhere, is at a very low level. Now, my question always is, is it any lower than it was, you know, 50 <laughs> years ago? And I, and I honestly Was don't. there a golden age when people actually, everyone cared about science? Yeah, I, or at least knew a little. You know, sometimes I think, what was it like about 100 years ago in the very early 1900s when the newspaper headlines would be about Thomas Edison or Nikola Tesla or back in England another 100 years ago where we didn't have all the mass media. We didn't have nearly as much media. So um, a big science demonstration by Michael Faraday would draw a huge crowd. So uh, so you think there was a golden maybe age? Maybe there was, but was it a golden age of, of interest in science or it was just uh, there's um, nothing else for entertainment? Yeah, maybe it's only know. a magnesium age. Maybe it wasn't a golden <laughs> Not age. Not quite golden, yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. But it, it seems to me that Museums in general cater to a lot of kids. In many cases, they don't have the choice of whether they go or not. So. But I mean, you know, maybe like a third or half the visitors might be school kids. And kids, of course, are a little more plastic than the adults that are chaperoning them around the uh, museum, right? So reaching kids, I suppose, is maybe the best thing you can do. Sure, get them young. Yeah, because uh, as we grow up, there really is this feeling like we get bogged down in all the adult responsibilities and most people start caring less about things that aren't, you know, central to their survival and supporting their family. Um, so whatever it is, like for a lot of people, that sense of wonder that is absolutely part of childhood, we do lose it. We go, oh, you know, they, they, I don't know, people stop caring about it, except for scientists. Scientists keep getting deeper and deeper into it. And that's, you know what, I love these kinds of occupations. One thing I love about science, and you know, it would apply to comedians too, and kinds of artists, is that we don't, for the most part, have our eye on a goal, age 65, I'm retiring. I'm going to retire by 60. It's like so many scientists and artists, they don't have any desire to retire. There's what, what are you going to do when you retire? You'll have more time to do what you love. What do you love doing? Comedy or science. So you're already doing what you love. Uh, so I think that's a really special thing about scientists is that they really, it's not just that their career is dedicated to some interesting questions, answering questions like a detective. It's that their lives, it's that this is what they talk about 
at home. It's not just what they talk about at work. It's what they talk about socially. It's because it's the coolest thing. And sure, they have other interests, but it's like this is true passion for a subject. You know, since you are a science comedian, I mean, that you know, you've been that for a while and you've practiced that not just here in North Carolina, but in San Francisco. You were in L.A. for a while. Who decides to become a, not, uh, being a comedian is one thing, but being a science comedian. Hey, you know, I think there's a lot of good material in, I don't know, organic chemistry or something for stand-up. I mean, how did that right. happen? Well, it wasn't this calculated thing. It was a very natural evolution. I became a comedian. But I was already always a geek. I liked science and science fiction. So from the time that I started comedy, my love of science informed my act. So you could see me and you go, oh, you know, so many of my things were geeky that you could size me up and know I liked science and science fiction. But what happened is I, I had some jokes. I had geeky jokes that I did in nightclubs all the time. But some jokes were a little more obscure. And I could do it. And most of the room will stare at me and one guy will laugh, doubled over with laughter. And I'm like, you're right. I'm right. They don't know. But since a big part of the job is wanting to get booked back at a club that you work, you got to get the laugh. So some of my favorite geeky jokes I just didn't get to use very often unless I had like a critical mass of science people in the audience. And then I'd pull them out and they'd kill. So I started to realize I needed to find the complimentary audience to my act, the adenine to my thymine, the guanine to my cytosine, if you will. So what happened, it's just like I went to look and the phrase sciencecomedian.com uh, was available. That was either a really good sign or a really bad sign. I was going to say, are you the first? I mean, <laughs> apparently, I don't know. I mean, I know other people have dabbled with geeky material and stuff, but I don't know. I uh, started using the phrase science comedian, and it doesn't mean that every time I'm talking, it's about a science subject. Sometimes it's an absurd use of a metaphor or analogy or science language. Like I noticed whenever my mom would lose weight, my dad would gain weight. And when my dad lost weight, my mom gained weight. It was like the conservation of mass within our family. And I had a theory, you never actually lose weight. You just give it to somebody else. Fat can be neither created nor destroyed. One of the basic laws of the universe. So, the so lipid clearly, law. Yeah. that wasn't me talking about science. I'm talking about my parents gaining and losing weight. In an absurd way, I use this analogy from science. So, and, and, and would the comedy clubs book a science comedian? I mean, did, did, did they figure there was a market? Sure. Some will, some won't. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I was already just doing comedy in clubs and at colleges and private events. And then when I changed it to science comedy, I started getting a lot of attention from science organizations and a lot of private events. And now if I do a comedy club, typically I just do one night and I do an evening of science humor and we promote it that way and people come out. And quite often, in fact, at Rooster Tea Feathers, I remember that a significant portion of the crowd were people that never had been to the club before. So they didn't come to comedy clubs normally, but they're like retired science teachers and just fans. And they're like, oh, science comedian, what's this? And they came out to a comedy club for the first time to check it out. Brian Mallow, thanks so very much for talking with me. Nice talking to you, Seth. Brian Mallow is a science comedian, and he works in science communications at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh. Well, one nice thing about Brian, you got to say, everybody laments the state of science literacy in the country, but here's a comedian who assumes that his audience is science literate, and he can make a living at it. 
you know, the thing about sci-fi is it's just a fun genre. There's no doubt about that. But but it's also interesting in the sense that, as Ed Finn said, it may be the last great literature of ideas. And we, we talked a little bit about that, that the hero in a sci-fi film is often the idea, not the characters. And that, that's clearly an intriguing thought. And it's a shared idea, or at least it's a shared future. What we're presented with is a glimpse as to a possible future, and then we can all decide whether or not that's a future that we want to move toward. Yeah, indeed. And it was also pointed out that, in fact, before the Second World War, the idea of progress was thought to be an unalloyed good. It was always going to be good progress. And after the Second World War, people weren't so sure. Remember all those atomic bomb tests? Well, there were a lot of movies made about those, and they usually ended, you know, some terrible thing like giant ants invading Los Angeles. So science fiction became a kind of an accessible crystal ball for the populace to see what our futures might be like. Well, you say it's accessible to the populace, and that's true. But it may be a little less accessible or a little more difficult to access for those people who want to break into science writing. We heard Andy Fracknoy seems to have made a success of it, but uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to do. It's a you know it's a different skill set, and those skills don't always overlap with the science skills. So so scientists who can make that transition are truly, in a sense, re- Renaissance people. I really admire them. Well, we should not forget to give the list of the films that we heard in the program. We hope that our listeners were jotting down the names of these films. Seth, do you want to say what we started with? Well, the first one was Blade Runner with Rutger Hauer. And the Philip K. Dick novel that it came from is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The second one was It Came from Outer Space. That was followed by Orson Welles reading the intro to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. After that was The Martian. After that, Colossus, the Forbin project that computers run amok. (laughs) And I understand we have one more clip that you'd like to play. Indeed, one more. This is a real classic. Uh, It's the day the earth stood still. I'm going to tell you right now. But at the end of the film, Michael Rennie comes out and he lectures the people gathered in front of the White House about how they better behave. And you know what? Michael Rennie could read the Bronx phone book and I would have listened to him. He was so good. But he would read it in an English accent. Yes. And do we expect that the aliens will have English accents? If you go to enough movies, you know they have English accents. <laughs> Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you. Thanks to the folks whose talents are not fictional, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance, and the voice work of Emma Bentley. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit research and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to science fiction. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find it in our archive at our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because it feels more real, check out the listing on our website 
website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you listen by using iTunes, well, we invite you to leave a review of Big Picture Science on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, well, be sure to throw in some faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Anyone else have thoughts? Well, yes, I have thoughts. Every sentient being does. No, about our novel, That Does Not Deconstruct... Ah, I I took the semantic interpretation of your query to be literal. I have thoughts about the novel, but first, I'd like to unpack the epistemology of the word thought. No doubt about it. Semantic fiction is a runaway success. 